running out of ammo. One of the men that was with him had got hit in the leg and the leg was you know, broken from the round that hit his leg and he's trying to carry him, get across a flooded field, which he thought may get him back to the American lines. And when, it, when he pulls him up and crawls up on the bank with him, there was a German from the 15th Parachute Infantry Regiment uh, with his MP40 standing right there greeting them. He looked around and summed it up really well. He says, we're about to find out what tough really is. An excerpt from today's guest, whose latest book recounts the faith, courage, and hard scrabble life of a North Carolina World War II infantryman. Award-winning documentary filmmaker and author Mark Hager is here, and I'll speak with him right after this break. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spirit. Welcome back. Today's guest is a historian and an award-winning documentary filmmaker based in North Carolina. He co-produced the Telly Award-winning The Border States of America, a documentary that paints a picture of the U.S.-Mexico border through the eyes of sheriffs, ranchers, and residents in each border county. He also produced The Last Gathering, the 75th anniversary of D-Day. His latest book is The Last of the 357th Infantry, Harold Frank's World War II story of faith and courage. And author Mark Haker joins us now. Mark, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's been an exciting time. Well, it's going to be fun because I always love talking about World War II. And you have done um, several films on World War II and written several books on World War II. What was it about Harold Frank's story that drew you in? It's kind of a multitude of, of different things and that this would be this is the, the first real book. And here it is. I got it just fresh off the press, even though it's officially not supposed to be released yet. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, this would be the first on it. Normally, I'm, I'm really into documentaries. But this particular story um, um, was interesting in that when you look at the latest, I mean, when you think of the, the greatest generation, um, I have I have constantly looked and read at different books and I've known um, several different authors such as Shelby Foote, when you think of Civil War fame um, and Bruce Cat, and I mean, I mean, it, it's going back a little bit further, but I noticed that when you read um, some of these military histories, especially when you, when you get into World War II, we can find lots of stories about uh, the men and the units that went into action. But Harold um, and his ability to still be pretty sharp um, in terms of his thoughts and memory of going way back, I backed up and said, um, let's, let's examine who this person is. Let's start um, from a child. And, and as he is building to become a man and for his generation and unfortunately or fortunate depending on which perspective you're coming from he had to become a man you know when most americans today are still considered to be kids right and and his story is is really riveting as a as a young child um growing up in rural davidson county north carolina um with a, a very devout um, Christian or Lutheran family background, but um, 
his particular story is catching in that when you deal with a person who innovates so well as he did, you can find his mode of survival with a few events, a particular one when he's just five years old. So, and that's when I stopped. I said, let's back up, let's get into his mind. Let's walk with him from the age of five. And that covers the first six chapters practically as he gets to the point to where I think a reader will say, this is, this is re what they had to do day in and day out from the time he got up to the time he, he went to sleep and then events that happened during that time period and those years. Um, it's, we, I don't know if we can compare it to anything today. The great depression you're speaking yes. about. Mm -hmm. The great depression and the farm community, it actually hit earlier. It, in the farm community, the depression had already hit hard by, say, the 1926-27 era. Of course, we think of the Dust Bowl that was already occurring, but that, that's not right here in North Carolina. But the price and the effect on what it did to the farms and the struggle of the family farm trying to figure out a way to make it before the Great Depression becomes official everywhere. And this story of, of innovation, um, the story of resilience, the, the story of a profound view of faith and duty, and, and, ex, and ex, assuredly the idea of family, and the family having to pull all together. There's no complaining. This, <laughs> there's, doesn't matter the age, doesn't matter what's going on during the day, um, it, it has to be done. There's no arguing. Right. This is it. And so you pull all those resources together and then get into that, that grime, that, that, um, that real grit that it took to pull through. And it changes your perspective in life and the realization of what, what daily chores are going to be. And he was able to remember back to that time. Yeah, it took, and, and then talking to others with some of the family and then going through some of the records and traveling over to um, the family farm back near Tyro, North Carolina, which is still a very quaint uh, location. Um, then I was able to pull that together. And then I found a few events that to where the aha moment for a writer happens. You're going, this yeah. is what this, this event right here foreshadowed what happens when he's a POW in Nazi Germany in Dresden that gets firebombed while he's there and what happens when he is cut off and behind lines fighting the Germans earlier before he gets captured and wounded. You can you can point to events that happened, things that he did, and then and then see, oh well that he had a similar event in which he had to uh, change some resources as a young kid be able to handle an event that happened. Um, what was there. that event that happened that uh, shaped the rest of his life? Uh, well, the, uh, without giving away all of the book. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> yeah, don't give away all of the book. You can say he realized before he ever fired his first weapon that the first thing you had to do before you did that was to be able to completely take it apart, put it back together, understood the, the amount of powder that it took to fire, whether it was the I, an Ivy Johnson, the 12 gauge or 
the 22 single shot that um, that he had, or you know, even with the um, BB gun in which they had to carefully shoot, but only hit something they could pull the BBs back out of because they couldn't afford to buy anymore. Right. And so learn to um, learn to be careful when you when you shoot and hitting what you're going after, but at the same time to conserve ammo and, and shells. Um, they they were keen on the farm and as David County was and Davidson County all over bird hunting became essential part of it. And of course, and then having a English pointer, but you didn't just go out to joy hunt. Um, it was, it was a, it was a hunt for food, um, learn how the pointer operates. And then you had to learn wing and shot and then figure out how when the covey would bust, to where you only shot when two birds cross because the dog's going to, the dog is going to go after the singles anyway. There's no use to just shoot at something in the sky. Mm -hmm. It was so, and then you operate as a team, you know, whether it was his uncle and his dad hunting together with himself, they, um, they knew exactly where they were going to go, um, how to be able to handle whichever direction that the birds may fly. Um, and then that carried over into strategies, whether it was rabbit, or um, strategies for something as simple as using a slingshot to go after um, all kinds of different birds, whether it's meadowlarks, robins, blackbirds, et cetera. And then that, and then that carries over to um, being able to take care of the family hogs. And when we think of barbecue in North Carolina, that catches a lot of people's attention. But um, why the, they depended so much on pork that uh, comes out in the book and will be explained to anybody that is, you know, poor, the amount of pigs that uh, that you can have if taken care of properly can feed that family, but it's not easy. It's, it's a lot of hard work and it depends on a lot of resourcefulness from, and so I backed up and I said, well, wait a minute, you know, the, his dad had a famous statement it says save everything, but the squeal and shoot it so that it doesn't squeal. <laughs> and so that was meant every single piece of meat, every single piece of fat, anything that could be turned into lard, you saved. And what couldn't be used just for lard, then you turn that around and use the ashes from the wood cook stove to be able to make the soap that they use to clean everything. We think of, when we think of lye soap before they could afford Red Devil lye, they had to make it themselves. So that whole process of innovation and how they, uh, fixed their tools because they had no hardware store to go to to buy the tools wow. and they had to learn to make it and every most of the people around them were in the same same boat but they they helped each other um and so whether it was his sister who could outpick him in the cotton field which uh always was something he he tried as hard as he could to be able to catch up with Naomi. That's his sister, but she beat him every single time. But, <laughs> and then they would turn around and use their weekends to try to pick somebody else's cotton and get enough so that they could get their, their mom and dad, something that could help them. Um, so their, um, that their family home was in um, bad condition when he was a child. And when he was five, He's awakened because there's an opportunity, but excruciating work that they could get the uh, timber that they needed, but they would have to cut it, mill it themselves. And then to be able to finally build a house, of course, you, you know, you look at that as the reader and when it's over with, you know, 
it's still a house without indoor plumbing, still a house (laughs) that when you think of today, uh, what they thought was great, we would say, well, that's, that's not anymore, but a little bit more space. Um, but, um, and you carry that through it. And, um, and by the time you, you get to where he didn't volunteer for the army, you know, he gets drafted like, like most Americans. And so, the ability of the family survival is stopped because he has to go to war. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, author Thomas McKenna will be here to discuss his new book, Moral Warrior. So I, I think it's an important point that almost all the more moral guerrillas I talk about were fighting as soldiers in an American army. Now, they were very irregular soldiers. And one of the ways they were regular is that they were barefoot, they wore scraps of uniforms that carried very outmoded rifles, sometimes no rifles at all. And they were constantly plagued by shortages of ammunition. On the first mission that uh, Adil was sent on with his men, uh, they were allowed two rounds of ammunition each to carry out an attack on a, on a Japanese garrison. <laughs> That's next time. And if you're enjoying this World War II episode, check out our earlier program about Ronald Spears and his band of brothers with author Jared Frederick. One of the, the core elements of the book is his written correspondence with Dick Winters because that truly gave us an insider perspective, uh, perspectives in which they were very candid with each other about what they did and what they did not do during the Second World War. Uh, and so that was one of the really fascinating things is that you, you saw these older men coming to terms with their celebrity, celebrity that they were sometimes uncomfortable with. You'll find the link to that show in this episode's description. Now, talk a little bit about his unit, the 357th. Right. That's the, um, that's how I, when I first met him by accident, um, I saw the POW cap that he likes to wear. And then when he told me the unit, I realized, wait, time out. I was going, this is World War II. And he said, yes. And I realized the 357th, um, from my own military experience, and I was stationed in Germany in the army back in the 80s and had ventured to, you know, some of these sites. And so in reading about military history, I knew about the 90th Infantry Division, the famous Texas and Oklahoma tough hombres. But, and I was shaking my head, how do you get in that unit? Because he went to the basic in Camp Shelby, Mississippi, which was the 69th Division. Mm-hmm. And that has to do with that background as a child. Um, he knew weapons well. And when he was in basic with the 271st Infantry out of the 69th Division, had a, a sergeant stood up, was holding a BAR, and told him what it was, which in the Army means badass rifle, not grounding automatic rifle. Right. And it's a little different. Civilian world, military world. Um, but told him that it could fire up to 400 rounds a minute if you knew what you were doing. And he raised his hand immediately says, I want it. And um, when he got it, the first thing he did, not sh- not to shoot it, but to take it completely apart, which they had to, all of us in basic, you know, you have to learn the M16 inside and out, backwards, forwards, but he was excited. So he could take it apart and put it together, he said, in a few days, blindfold. And, and he excelled. And he... Um, um, going to the rain, they try to get him to stay at Camp Shelby to help train new recruits and offered to give him the rank of corporal um, from basic. 
but you know, you know, he said, I didn't come here to go to school. Um, came here to get this war over and fight the Japs and the Germans. Mm -hmm. And so one day on a, on a, what about a 90 mile road march, it was going to ironically end with some amphibious training down near Gulfport. If it was, and, um, then he gets pulled and he looks around and the other guys that uh, Jeep had drove up, pulls these guys apart. He noticed they were BAR guys who had qualified well. And next thing you know, um, they're all being um, hustled out and given a three-day pass, told to be back at like 6 a.m. on Monday. And, and then they're off the Camp Shanks. And then as we know, they were preparing for uh, the Normandy invasion and end up, it ends up in, in England, which that was the hard part is that what they were doing, he was training and he tried to show some other people um, different inside and outs to do with the BAR while he was training in, um, in England. And then he's really a replacement, him and a whole group of others. And they're waiting and they're being assigned to the 90th division. They're training around them, but they didn't know yet. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, the 90th enters um, its combat scene around um, the 357th actually came ashore on D-Day, um, some elements of it, but they were there to prepare for the entire division to come in on uh, June the 10th. Oh, sir. And, and then by about June the 10th, somewhere between the 10th and the 12th, then the groups coming in that are going to be backing them up, which means the replacements, the equipment, et cetera, are all coming in. And um, by the 12th, he is he and his assistant gunner um, are immediately pulled, loaded up, and head to the rendezvous point of the 90th Infantry Division near Point Laab. That's at the Lafayre Causeway, for those who know military history. And then he uh, enters combat at that point as the Battle of Gorbeville um, takes place. Amfreville, I think, was nearby. Equivenaville, um, key little crossroads. And uh, the 90th Division's toughest fight will be from there through um, the Battle of Bucadre. Was it during this time that he was uh, that he was captured during that at battle? The, just before Saint Lo, at the as the Battle of Bucadre, so you had a Gorbeville. Well, you had the Lafayre Causeway infighting between the Lafayre Causeway and shortly a little bit further up the road at Point Laab, that crossroad. And then you had continued fighting around Hill 122 and, and Gorbeville, which was horrendous. That's where the 357th lost about 115% of its, of its men, which meant two things. One, um, many of the people that Harold first met were gone. And then two, most of the veterans now are, are the replacements that came in right that the, as the battle was progressing. And which also meant he doesn't know anyone's name hmm. because he's from the 69th, 271st, and thrown in um, as a BAR man, which has to be on every patrol because that's the only uh, machine gun in an infantry squad. Hmm. Um, so um, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult for him. And so, well, he knows one person that's his assistant gunner, Paul Esworthy. And, um, and together, um, you know, they fight it out and learn and, and then adapt quickly. Um, but they never really got to know a name of, but just a handful of people as they win. And then the unit gets chewed up and mauled up 
um, from that point. And then uh, he's the last experienced, well-experienced BAR man and was selected while they were finally getting some rest on July, right after Independence Day. July the 5th, they had captured 17 Germans at a railroad cut and um, got their first hot shower since uh, before the initial D-Day landings. New change of uniforms, got to write a few letters home, and then they came and got them and said two companies, um, that was I and L company at the 357th, they had lost contact with, they had one NCO that came through it and they needed a patrol to go out and try to make contact with them and have an engineer to go with them to try to restore communication. And um, it was a night patrol, Harold um, is leading it out with his BAR man, but because of the difficult nature of it, he had you know told his assistant gunner to stay back several, um, several people back and they ended up uh, getting caught in an ambush. Um, Harold is on one side of the road. The others are cut off on the other, still on the, um, on the side that they hadn't crossed yet. And he's trapped on that side. And he actually finds two or three survivors of those two lost companies. Oh. And they fight it out for nine hours. He gets shot in the shoulder and running out of ammo. One of the men that was with him had got hit in the leg and the leg was you know, broken from the round that hit his leg and he's trying to carry him get across a flooded field which he thought may get him back to the american lines and when it when he pulls him up and crawls up on the bank with him there was a german from the 15th parachute infantry regiment uh, with his mp40 standing right there greeting them and so he got the trigger mechanism um quickly undone from his ber and threw it into the flooded swamp so that would be of no use to the Germans from his mm. BAR and then um, he looked around and summed it up really well he says we're about to find out what tough really is yeah and they executed the the guy that had the fractured leg because he couldn't walk and then Harold hit his wound as best he could um, in his shoulder let's uh, skip forward to his um his time at his second uh, POW camp at Dresden. Uh, seems like part of the book is, is focused on that. Yeah, it is. What, yeah. What, uh, what did he take from that? I don't want to give away anything in the book, but what were some of his feelings towards that time? Well, it still goes back to that childhood. And he, he's constantly looking and evaluating the condition and what needs to be done and he realized uh, well one he will first tell you where god's intervention happens um because technically some of the men were staying away from him because this the stench from the the wound that was infecting from his shoulder and was actually causing a fever um with him that you know he was saying if something doesn't happen he's he's a goner and they look, you know, right at that point, uh, the Germans, you know, threw into the barn where they were holding them a U.S. Army medic who had been captured. And they let him keep his his medic bag. Oh. And he recognized that something was wrong with Harold and went up and said, if you don't mind, I can't 
I won't be able to pull the round out of your shoulder, but I can heal it. Um, if you'll let me. And so, you know, he will say emotionally that that medic saved my life, but he couldn't lift his arm up um, very high. Right. And, um, but they were there long enough to where he got the infection under control before they moved him out by railhead. And the whole railhead experience is something that I think the readers are going to be um, completely taken back about how the Germans treated them on the trains, some of the things they did deliberately to them. Uh, miraculously, he survives that. But then he makes it into um, Dresden at Stalag 4B, and the conditions are horrendous. And he realizes if they stay there, and he, he would tell me he could hear people mumble, mumbling, we're going to die, we're going to die, because of how much, um, or the lack of food and bad water. So he was looking for anything. And him and a couple other Southern boys, there was mm. about three of them, that at least they kind of teamed up to know this is going to be an effort of several of us to try to uh, survive this. And right. uh, they volunteered when a German came in and offered a work detail and said, we can get out of here. You know, maybe it could be whatever that could happen with uh, being moved somewhere. And so what ends up happening is they're taken to Klotchy Airfield. Um, just outside of Dresden and there they were put in a work camp and worked in a pulp factory where I mean that's like making paper right. where they were forced them to work 12 hours a day seven days a week oh. and but the he would say but the food was better but wait till you read in the book what better was yeah and that that really helps you to understand if that's better than what it was in the Stalag, then it's amazing anyone survived. Um, and so, and how he learned to improvise that slingshot when he was five years old that he learned to make in his sleep. Well, he was able to recraft that and him and those, those three men together um, without the Germans knew it, were able to, to get food that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to get using that slingshot and um and developed a plan on how to use it without the germans noticing it and so that gets pretty cool um but then i'm going man all the things that his favorite uncle taught him when he was a boy along with his dad um that were everyday things on the farm he's reintroducing um right there in that pow camp He's using what he, uh, the skills he learned. Um, mm -hmm. We're uh, rapidly running out of time. And mm -hmm. It sounds like we've left a lot for the reader to uh, get excited about. But I, I wanted to ask you if, if you have a follow-up uh, project to this book. Um, yes, I am. I've got another another veteran. Unfortunately, he, he passed away during COVID, not from COVID. But um, it, it became interesting. I met him. Um, again, by accident, and this was having to do with the 75th anniversary of D-Day, but he was with the 82nd Airborne, did all jumps with the 82nd during World War II, stayed in through uh, Korea, and then um, they forced him to retire during Vietnam. <laughs> but um, he, what drew me to him was 
he remembered when the 90th division showed up at the LaFerre Causeway and how excited oh, he was wow. to see them. And then they both, his, his uh, parachute infantry regiment and roughly what I think was Harold's company G 357th um, group, both were pulled back at the same time. Ironically, they probably met each other while they were getting showers and meals because he saw them coming in and they were next in line to get showers and such. And so it drew me to him and then his story when I went to interview him at his house as a young kid, um, mm -hmm. very similar to, to Harold's. And the only reason he went airborne was because they lost their farm during the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma and were living in a tent. And he had watched his mom drop dead when he was six working in cotton fields. So you got similar similarities and that the only reason he goes airborne, he could believe he could get $50 to jump out of a plane. Yeah. And he said, my dad needs it. My dad's got to have that. So he goes airborne to help save the family. That's kind of that same cohesion of the family unit. The book is called The Last of the 357th Infantry, Harold Frank's World War II Story of Faith and Courage. Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Okay, well, thank you and look forward to talking with you again. You be safe. That's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining me. Next time, author Thomas McKenna will be here to discuss his new book, Moral Warrior. So I, I think it's an important point that almost all the more moral guerrillas I talk about were fighting as soldiers in an American army. Now, they were very irregular soldiers. And one of the ways they were regular is that they were barefoot. They wore scraps of uniforms that carried very outmoded rifles, sometimes no rifles at all. And they were constantly plagued by shortages of ammunition. On the first mission that uh, Adil was sent on with his men, uh, they were allowed two rounds of ammunition each to carry out an attack on a, on a Japanese garrison. <laughs> That's next time. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.